Welcome to FA Podcasts. I am Atul Singh. With me is Christopher Rupachal. Together, we are presenting to you the hot mic. He's stuck with me again, and here we are. And oh, what rogues and peasant slaves are we? We have uh, taken quite a bit of flack from uh, the chairwoman of FO for our recalcitrance, for our unwillingness to uh, do these on time. Uh, but we promise to be good little boys and in the future be better about this. Now, this is what happens when you put a Texan and an Indian together. We <laughs> don't quite have the same sense of timing as the British do or as the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants like Glenn Carl do. Well, I reckon we'll get around to it eventually. One hopes, one hopes, one lives in hope. Uh, anyway, speaking of hope, my hopes were dashed uh, today because Borussia Dortmund missed out on the German uh, Bundesliga title. They just needed to win their last match and they bloody blew it. Uh, some chap missed a penalty and they drew 2-2 and Bayern Munich won its 11th consecutive title. Well, so the Krauts were, and I say this as a Kraut, S-C-H-E-L-L is my last name. The Krauts were going to win either way, right? That's probably true. I okay. Well, know, you know, look, it was a Kraut league, but the underdog lost and, uh, and Goliath won. Yet oh, you again. know how I root for uh, the, uh, the underdogs. Yeah, and David lost. And Borussia you, Dortmund basically has lots of young players whom they spot early, train them, give them a shot, and their team spirit is extraordinary. But for the 11th consecutive year, they were beaten by the evil Bayern Munich. Ooh, These Bavarians, feelings. you know. I mean, I, I, I don't mind Bayern Munich winning, but I mind them winning 11 consecutive times. That means you have a one league, one team league, which is ghastly and dreadful and tragic. Well, you always read me the riot act for rooting for the underdogs, so you know where I stand on that. But this is not a sports radio program. Not and yet, actually... anyway. Not yet, anyway. Not, <laughs> not yet, anyway. I mean, we are coming to the business end of football, which Americans like Christopher call soccer, soccer. which is dreadfully barbaric. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am, you know, as a brownie fuzzy wuzzy bemoaning the Bundesliga. Well, uh, you know, you're going to have to have to run run the, uh, the the pitch, as they say, on that one, because I'm woefully <laughs> ignorant on this. Clearly, I, you know, I have an identity crisis and so do you, because you should know more about the Bundesliga given your bloody last that is That is true. But however, we play on a slightly different pitch on this program. And I think today we're going to start off with the dreaded debt ceiling, which is not going well, but I think we're going to squeak uh -oh. out a deal at the ninth hour. All right, hang on a minute, because for us uh, ignorant foreigners, uneducated and barbaric as we are, tell us what exactly is the debt ceiling? Well, it's basically where America, we, uh, I, uh, well, uh, literally I. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I don't think uh, Glenn Carl, the retired CIA officer, would be very pleased because he genuinely believes he's Mr. America. He, he, is, he is Mr. America. I, I stand corrected. But there is basically a statutory reason why we can't spend more than a certain amount. Now, this is a fairly recent thing, starting in 1917 with the Second Liberty Bond Act. And then in 1939, the Congress set the first aggregate debt limit, which we didn't really have to fiddle with until multiple decades later. Then for a while, we had something called the Gephardt rule that allowed us to get around that. But now we must face the dreaded debt ceiling. And uh, when, this, did they when did that come about? 
The current one. Mm -hmm. Current one, technically we're doing something called extraordinary measures, which means we're robbing Peter to pay Paul. That's okay, but when did the debt ceiling hit this? Uh, uh, earlier this year. I don't know uh, no, exactly no, what, what month. It, it wasn't it something around 1970 or something when... Oh, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And it might have been as early as the 50s, yeah. 60s, where we first dealt with our first debt ceiling. Mm -hmm. It became a real political football uh, in the last decade or two. Mm -hmm. For a while, we were protected by the Gephardt rule, mm -hmm. as I said. And what it's is also, the Gephardt rule? Well, the Gephardt rule basically said when you pass a budget, you more or less say the debt ceilings increase to such and such an mm -hmm. amount. Um, but we also have done different ways of dealing with the debt ceiling. We used to do it dollar for dollar, but that was politically difficult because the debt ceiling would crop up at these inopportune moments. And so now, more often than not, we pick a date and we say, okay, the debt up until this date is is what will permit. And then that... So literally, you're setting a ceiling to the debt or the legislature is setting a ceiling to the debt and it's the House of Representatives, which is the lower house of the Congress that sets the ceiling. So in a sense... Well, no, the whole Congress has to set the ceiling. The it Congress. has to be agreed on. But, but budgetary power is with the lower house. The power it? of the purse strings, yes. Yeah, exactly. So the, but nonetheless, in order to overcome our current predicament, we will have to have the president and both the upper and the lower house, the Senate and the House of Representatives, agree Agreed. on what but this deal the, is. Clearly, the speaker is playing more of a role than the Senate. And that's more a function yeah. of politics because the president is a Democrat, the speaker a Republican. The speaker has, uh, has to corral a certain number of votes. Mm -hmm. And Hakeem Jeffries, who is the... Uh, the uh, the majority leader of the House right now, so the top Democrat, has been somewhat sidelined, and a lot of Democrats are not really happy about that. But primarily this negotiation has been between, as of late, uh, the Speaker of the House and uh, Biden's appointed representatives, not officially appointed, but the people Biden has said, uh, these guys can can speak for me. So we were originally told that the debt ceiling was well nigh upon us with June 1st. The Treasury Secretary has That's said now it's... In a couple of days, really, three days. It, so. it was to be, but now we're saying it's going to be the 5th. And indeed, Treasury Secretary Yellen warned Democrats when they had the majorities in the House and the Senate, though they'd lost the House after November, that they had a brief window, what's called the lame duck, to go ahead and raise the debt ceiling. And for whatever reason, that didn't occur. And so Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, is now potentially being forced to make very difficult decisions. All right. So um, basically, the Republicans want to set a ceiling to the debt, and the Democrats want to increase that ceiling. Everybody recognizes it must be done. There are very few who say... It doesn't ever have to happen. Mm -hmm. But the Republicans are trying to uh, extract spending concessions. They feel very strongly that spending is out of control and that we have to rein it in. Mm -hmm. The points of contention at the moment seem to be energy policy, particularly energy policy as it relates to um, certain regulatory matters. So basically then, the Republicans want easier drilling of oil and gas. Well, but they're, the, the question is, are they willing to trade off oil and gas 
uh, liens and, and well, not liens, but oil and gas permitting for maybe some green energy permitting, because even people who really like green energy are saying it's really hard to get the permits. Mm -hmm. uh, the other sticking point has to do with what might be called welfare reform, i.e. work mm -hmm. for certain government benefits. And Republicans feel they have a winning hand here because they've made their case clearly and early that they wanted to negotiate. Biden's earlier stance was that he didn't want to negotiate. Biden has felt that the negotiation should be more quiet and private. Republicans have been very public about their stance that they want to negotiate. So here we are stuck at the 11th hour, and they've made a lot of progress. In fact, we have heard the BBC that has announced yeah, that there's a deal. There's so, a deal. So let's loot back, okay, and look at this problem. The debt of the U.S. as on 10 February 2023 was $31.46 Mm-hmm. The GDP at the end of 2022 was 26.13 trillion. Yes. So the debt GDP ratio ain't that great. It's already. exploded. And to be yeah. fair, it exploded under Trump with the COVID measures we took. We spent three, four trillion dollars there. Mm -hmm. uh, what was little remarked was that the Congressional Budget Office came out with a report saying that in the first half of the fiscal year, mm -hmm. we spent one point one trillion dollars in debt. And Republicans say, hey, COVID's over and we're still spending a trillion, well, two, theoretically $2.2 trillion a year in debt. Uh, this can't last. Okay. Now, uh, the mechanics, let's get through the guts of the debt. 21.8% mm -hmm. of public debt is owned by another arm of the federal government, such as Medicare, bank arms, deposit yeah. insurance, uh, or another arm, I said. So one of the many yeah. arms. Uh, retirement programs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the Fed holds another, and this is 6.87 trillion. So the Fed holds another 6.25 trillion in US government debt. Mm -hmm. So um, what's the problem? You could keep printing money, Christopher. So this gets into, well, we don't even have to do that, actually. Uh, modern monetary theory. Well, we don't, we don't, yeah, 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 and, and God knows what I think about that rubbish. Um, they're, they're actually, the Democrats have said, and, and others, that the 14th Amendment could be employed, which says that the debt of the U.S. shall not be questioned. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, people have different readings of it, but most people think what that means is that there is enough monthly revenue to cover the premiums on U.S. debt, the, the yield on U.S. debt, and that if worse comes to worse, then Janet Yellen will just have to prioritize that yield and, and pay, uh, pay the, the, the premiums on the debt, and that everyone else is just going to have to sort off. All right. So the key issue is U.S. debt is going up, up and away, and um, the Republicans believe that this debt should be controlled. And the Democrats under Joe Biden believe that uh, um, this debt is manageable. And the debt ceiling is really an argument about um, how to, to have that balance between spending and and earning. On Democrats see government. it as a revenue problem, revenue that we problem. just need to raise taxes revenue. one way, shape or the other. And, and the Republicans, Republicans see say, it as a spending problem. hey, this is kind of an all time spending high since World War Two. OK, and, and, and 
there'll be give and take and eventually the US will not default on its debt and all will be good with the world. I hope. I, I think... <laughs> 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 Here at Fair Observer, we make no promises, but uh, I think that that both sides will uh, come to come to reason, and that we will fight our way through this. Right. So, and if they are not in good Texan style, we'll tar and feather you and carry you off on a rail. Otherwise, the U.S. debt and the U.S. currency turns into ice cube. But that that's not the only ice cube we have. We're coming out of the the thaw in Bakhmut and uh, Ukraine, for that matter. And uh, we're looking at a spring offensive. And I understand you've had some interesting conversations with people recently. And so where does that stand? Yesterday itself. And, and so the Ukrainians did. have announced that they are ready for a spring offensive. But what I'm gathering from a lot of conversations, no one says this. Of course, everyone sounds bullish and says we'll beat the bloody Russians. Mm -hmm. But what I'm picking up uh, on um, in my conversations with uh, various people in various arms of the militaries, there is a lot of nervousness. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, of course, a possibility that the Russian military may be stretched. Um, their mercenaries have been troublesome. They've mm -hmm. been, shall we say, almost insubordinate. Uh, they've certainly made you know a song and dance, and of course, I'm specifically referring to the Wagner Group. Yes, and it's, who, who recently yeah. said they were pulling out of Bakhmut. So yeah, yeah. I, guess, I guess my question here is. There are two different reads on this I've heard. Yeah. One is that... Uh, the Actually, there are more than two, but two more than two. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. you correct me if yeah, I'm yeah. wrong, but yeah. uh, one is that they're just kind of nervous as anyone would be before, before a major big offensive. offensive. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. The other one is that they're not quite sure this is going to go their way. And... I, I think both of them are true. Uh -huh, so I think uh -huh. in this war, we don't really know sitting here as we are, what exactly is going on? Yeah. Because the truth of the matter is neither you and I are close to the front and have primary sources. Yeah. Uh, everyone is playing an info-op scheme. Uh, and on top of that, there are massive weaknesses on both sides. So mm -hmm. what are the weaknesses on the Russian yeah. side? Well, number one, uh, logistics. They're not great at it. Number mm -hmm. two, morale. They've had a and lot logistics of, have been a problem the entire time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Number two, morale. It, it's fundamentally a corrupt country. Another common problem they've is, had. It's of course a huge problem. Uh, number three, of course, is the fact their equipment isn't all that hot. Yes. Some of it is good, to be fair. Mm -hmm. Not all of it mm -hmm. is bad. I, I think uh, to blanket condemn all equipment that the Russians have is well, it's even naive. some that might have been good, yeah. uh, there was some corruption. I mean, you can have a, a yeah, fantastic the tires, for tank. Instance. That's yeah. the classic, yeah, right? That, of right. Course. Yeah. So the tires were cheap tires and they blew up and yada, yada. Yeah, rotted so, off the vehicle, which yeah. might have been a great vehicle, but they cheaped on it and exactly. one assumes corruption so to corruption care of the rest of the money. So becomes a national security yeah. issue. So there are lots of problems with the Russian side. Too many generals have died. Too many senior officers have yeah. died because they've got to send a senior officer right to the front. So that is certainly true. The uh, Ukraine, but having said that, even The Economist, which is rather bullish mm -hmm. about the Ukrainians, observed that the Russians send basically cannon fodder to soften up the Ukrainian defenses. And then they send their better troops later to mop up. Right. In and particular so, with the Wagner group, where they yeah. would take the prisoners, they'd send them out there exactly. and they'd basically watch them get shot to determine, well, which window are they shooting from? And then they'd go into Bakhmut and try to take out those positions. Yeah. So they lost a tremendous number of people. Yeah. And... and, and one of the things I've worried about um, 
a lot, um, is that um, the Ukrainians uh, who have been extraordinarily brave mm-hmm. and um, who have fought the good fight uh, might be losing far too many men than they can afford. Remember, mm-hmm. a lot of them has, have fled as refugees. Yes, and remember, as a percentage of their population, exactly. too. And, and yeah. remember, they are losing the flower of their youth, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. whilst the Russians are just getting rid of prisoners, inconvenient right. prisoners. Right. So the big uh, question mark is, how long can Ukraine afford it? And, and also, whilst uh, Ukraine has a very good military, and of course they have a showman leader right now. Yes, the question and they're is, hardened. Yeah, they're they're not young green exactly. recruits. Uh, the question, yet again, is, is this leader canny enough or is he overplaying his hand? Because yeah. he ain't no Churchill. He wasn't at Omdurman. He wasn't, he's not an ex-officer. He's fundamentally an actor, uh, you know, and um, say but what a damn good one. A damn good one. But say what you will, uh, you know, it says a lot about my natural prejudices. <laughs> I, I, I don't trust actors with top jobs. <laughs> I'd much rather have a Churchill than uh, uh, than uh, his current Ukrainian counterpart. So my doubts about uh, this entire offensive is that um, it may be a bit... Um, uh, a bridge too far. There are too many different tanks. You have to integrate them. Yes, you get F-16s, but will they be enough? Uh, can you cobble together so many uh, different types of equipment and have uh, ammunition? Well, for and, so and many we, you weapons? and I actually spoke to a fellow who commanded over three hundred yeah. uh, of Russia's best tanks at one point, and his concern was that the U.S. kit. U.S. weaponry we're sending over there would be a sort of prestige item that they wouldn't really yeah. deploy. Yeah. But that's an aside. We don't know. And also yeah. remember that Russia has got better at countering drones. Russia has also got better at countering the missiles. And the big question mark, and this is what Glenn Carl and I have always raised, and Glenn, by the way, is our very dear friend, a retired CIA officer, a good white Anglo-Saxon Protestant with ancestors in the Mayflower. Not that it's important, but what's important is that he's a very knowledgeable chap yeah. who spent decades in the CIA. And, and the question we often ask ourselves is, where is Russia today? Is it 1917, mm-hmm. wherein the Russian yeah. army eventually imploded? Or is it 1941, wherein they fuck up big time but they come back. Yeah, this is your common way of couching it. Um, but, you know, you have to say that the Storm Shadow missiles apparently are being used, that the range of the Ukrainians is extending, and people well, are talking about... they have lots of things such as HIMARS. They well, they're talking about what's called yeah. the HIMARS yeah. effect, which yeah. is pushing the Russian supply lines back further. Yeah. But yeah. I also want to talk about, about another frosty subject. Uh, you've written about the Arctic race. Uh, we're not talking about a race in terms of people. We're talking about... Yeah, the about Great a, Arctic Game that yeah. I've written about. Yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, in fact, I've been spending a lot of time with the Scandinavians. You came with me to the House of Sweden the other day, Did the other I, uh, evening. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wonderful. Uh, wonderful people, wonderful uh, cultural diplomacy in Washington. Uh, and one of the things that uh, made me write this piece was a real concern about the race um, in the Arctic. And the race is for resource extraction well, and, and sea you, routes. And, and you point out that earlier this year, Moscow grabbed uh, 1.7 million 
square kilometers of seabed. Now that's a lot of water. Yeah, I, I think one of the things to remember is that what has, uh, what has uh, Russia done? Russia has been very clever in the sense that they ratified the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Which the US has not. Which the US has not, yeah. in 1997. Yeah. And since then, they have constantly claimed the extended continental shelf. Now, most of our listeners will know that there's a nautical limit of 200 nautical, nautical miles. miles. Yeah. But if you are a coastal state, you can claim the continental shelf and there is the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf. Yeah, and the governing body has sanctioned Yes, and moves. they've deemed the majority of Russia's claims right. in the Arctic to be valid. So this February, which is not very long ago, Moscow gained rights to approximately, as you just said, 1.7 square kilometers of seabed. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that mean? That means that they have access to iron ore, they have access to copper, they have access to nickel, they have access to zinc, phosphates, and diamonds, not to mention 90 billion barrels of undiscovered, technically recoverable oil, uh, 1,670 trillion cubic feet of technically recoverable natural gas. I could go on. I don't want to drown people with yeah, statistics. Yeah, but, but indeed. The... But what it means is that they have access to resources very valuable ones. That's right. And and I think the Scandinavian countries uh, are, are very attuned to this problem. Indeed, uh, you may recall in, in uh, 39 and 40, uh, the Finns lost 11% of their territory, including their second largest city, Vyborg. I, I'm of sure course. I'm mispronouncing that. So, so they're seeing this land grab uh, yeah. with considerable concern. Exactly. But what is Russia doing this time that's different? As the Finns pointed out, to me, uh, when, when I met their leading think tank, the name is slipping me right now, and I apologize to our listeners. It'll come to me, I'm sure, as soon as I finish the podcast. And they pointed out that what Russia is doing this time is far more sophisticated. They are not just doing a military land grab. They're going through it in a legalistic way, and they hit the ground running before everyone else did. And they have used the law very sophisticatedly and very cleverly and very shrewdly to claim as much as they can by the law. At the same time, they are building their military strength in the Arctic. They are building bases. They've got, for instance, they've got uh, seven uh, uh, nuclear icebreakers. Yes. The US yeah. and China both have two each. Yeah, but so, even, I want to I yeah. point this out. Even China, they're no uh, shrinking violet. I mean, they're they're acting aggressively there and they basically want to be the De Beers of uh, Yeah, they call themselves a near-arctic power. And and let's let's be honest, why are they doing that? Because a ship sailed from Norway not too long ago mm -hmm. to South Korea. Mm -hmm. It took 19 days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. It takes much yeah. longer. I think the quickest you can get if I'm not mistaken me, let it was, me. It was quite a bit less, maybe 11 yeah, days, was it? It was, it, it was much, much faster. No, I think, um, so 19 days, and it takes over 50 days if they go oh, I see, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. and the Straits of Malacca. Yeah. So very quickly, think of the Suez Canal and the Straits of Malacca as two coronary arteries. Okay. They can be blocked any time. Yeah. And you can... The Suez blocks off China's trade with Europe. Yes. And Malacca blocks them off energy from Saudi Arabia. Yes, and the global and economy Iran. grinds to a halt. Exactly. Yeah. But more importantly, China suffers a heart attack. <laughs> All right? They've got two big coronary problems waiting to happen. Yes. And 
any navy can block it. The Australian navy could block it. Yes. The Indian navy could block it. So it is not just the US navy that's a threat to them. They have two major problems. The moment the Arctic opens up, and the Arctic is melting. Greenland lost uh, 270 billion tons um, last year, and it loses mm. that every year. Yeah. So the Arctic is melting, the polar ice is melting dramatically. So what this means is that the Northern Sea Route, NSR, and the Northwest Northwest Passage, which is NWP. Yes. All right. Both open up, which means that China can get all the gas, all the commodities, because it's the factory of the world, because it's the workshop yes. of the world from Russia, and it can bypass its yes. two coronary blockages. Yes. And not only that, they can do so cheaper, uh, yeah. faster, which is cheaper. Exactly. So all kinds of good things. Exactly. So, so there we on, are. on the one hand, you have the US-led West which is nervous about it, obviously. The Finns are not happy, the Swedes are not happy, the Danes are not happy, they own yeah. Greenland. Yeah. And on the other hand, you have Russia, and Russia is broke. So who is funding all the Russian buildup in the Arctic? The Chinese. Yeah. So you have the Russians backed by the Chinese who want basically a different world order. So the, the the great game has moved from Afghanistan to the Arctic now. Well, there we go. We have many great games for you this evening. Uh, I suppose the American debt ceiling, not necessarily a great game, sort of a game of drudgery. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how the Ukrainians feel about their spring offensive, but we wish them luck. And uh, you have the long game, I think, which is the Arctic. Oof, yeah. And uh, that's playing out in glacial fashion, I think. You could say it's playing out in polar fashion. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so there it is. We leave you all and we really appreciate you listening. And we uh, want uh, to give tribute to Claire who ran a very fast half marathon, faster than her husband. Uh, and we doff our proverbial hat, the graying uh, Christopher Rupachel and the balding Huttle <laughs> Singh, signing off to our fearless leader. Chapeau. Claire Price. <laughs> it's bye for now. 